invite you to follow along as I read from Psalm 84. Hear now the word of the living God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please pray with me. Almighty God, as we come before your word this morning, we come hungry, we we come thirsty because we need to be fed, we need to have our parched hearts wetted with the provisions of the living water, your son, Jesus Christ. So now as we study, would you fill us, would you exhort us, would you recalibrate our hearts according to the sweet treasures of the one in whom we have life and that more abundantly. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a joy to be with you here this morning, and I want to offer special thanks again to Pastor Sheridan and the session here for the invitation to be with you. Those of you who might have been with us yesterday for the Seminary on Saturday conference, we, as Pastor Sheridan has made abundantly clear this morning, we're going to continue on with some of the rich themes of what it means to walk in the wilderness. I have only been here this morning for a little while, and I have noted a grand number of children, young families that remind me very much of my own. My wife and I had our first four children in four years, and I remember that one particular winter morning when we lived in upstate New York, it was a frigid morning. And living in that part of the country when it was cold, it took about an extra hour to get everybody dressed and and to get everybody into the, the van to go to church. And that particular morning as we finished church and we were wrapping the kids up to get them back into our van, We got everyone in the van, as we thought, and made our way down the road. And something just didn't seem quite right. And as we were driving down the highway about five, ten minutes from the church, my wife said, you got Darren, right? 
I said, I thought you got Darren. And so we made a very quick U-turn on the highway and made our way back to the church to find our son, yes, bundled in his warm coat, still sitting in his car seat carrier, waiting for mom and for dad. It is a humorous story, but it's not so humorous, is it, when we as the children of the Heavenly Father at times begin to wonder if he cares, if he notices, has he abandoned us? Are we somehow a people that are now somehow outside the care of a God that somehow we thought did care? Are we in a place in which in our wilderness experience that God has turned his face away from us? Perhaps it is, as Pastor Sheridan laid before us, Something not with God, but perhaps with us. Maybe we have found ourselves embracing by accommodation the world around us. Or perhaps we've made the opposite sinful error of isolating ourselves. My hope this morning as we look at the text that lies before us, that we have our hearts recalibrated in a way that will enable us rightly to see our current situation in view of the destiny that the Lord God lays before us. To get at that this morning, I want to actually begin with some words from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 62, Isaiah, by the revelation of God the Spirit, says to the forlorn, destitute, and indeed quite weary people these words. The Lord says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. That is, for some of you familiar with the great old hymn, that's the Beulah land, the married land. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Almighty God is put before the people in the Old Covenant as as the God who delights in his people, as the apple of his eye. And the reference here in Isaiah 62 to this, this Beulah land anticipates that blissful day when the people of God will dwell forever in the presence of the one who is their creator and indeed their redeemer, the one who has forgiven them of their sin and, and called those who were not his people his people. And has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. You belong to me. You are the apple of my eye. You are my precious possession And this Psalm 84 looks to that day when we will be in the presence of that glorious God. But this psalm is also not just a psalm about that destination. It's a a psalm about the journey unto that destination. And how should we think about our current state as we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? How should we think about our life in the wilderness? How do we avoid the pitfalls of isolation and accommodation? Well, this particular psalm will focus us, I think, properly on the destination in a way that will guide us along the pathway in the wilderness. Psalm 84 is about that indescribably glorious day that we await, but it's also about the the journey there. 
the Apostle Paul actually reflecting on two chapters later in Isaiah 64, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this as follows, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here in Psalm 84, we find ourselves on a journey in the wilderness with a promise of hope that lies before us. Many religions have pilgrim theologies. The Buddhists have their own form of a pilgrim theology. The Hindus have their form of a pilgrim theology. Perhaps more familiar to you is the Islamic Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, a pilgrim theology. But the biblical notion of pilgrimage is radically and categorically different from all of the imposter versions. It is clear from this text that the God who is the God of the destiny is also the God imminently present with his people in the journey. And I want us, as we begin to look at this psalm, I don't want us to overlook the number of times in which this Lord, this covenant Lord is mentioned. Over and over again, he is called the covenant Lord, the Yahweh, the, the, the Lord who has said, you will be my people for I will be your God. He has made covenant with them. He is the covenant maker. He is the covenant keeper. He secures his people by his self-binding to his covenant love, his chesed love, his pursuing love of his people of whom you and I as the children of God are part. He is called also in this psalm in verse 1, verse 3, verse 8, verse 12, he is called the Lord of hosts. That is a term that speaks of the might of the Lord. It's the Lord of armies. Paul will reflect on this as well in terms of his argument that if he is for us, who can be against us? Make no mistake that the Lord who is taking us to this destiny is the Lord who fights on our behalf. And what do we see in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ but the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father under whose feet he has placed all things? Jesus Christ has secured that victory for us. This Lord of hosts, this Lord God of hosts is the one who fights on behalf of his people. He is described also in verse 2 as the living God. This is to be understood in juxtaposition to all the false gods, the Muslim version of a god, the Hindu versions of deity, the Buddhist notion of that which is ultimate. All of these, among all the other man-made religions of the world, have corrupted the version of not only the destiny, but of the journey itself. And we as the people of God are the people of the living God, not like the dumb idols that are around the old covenant people of God and indeed surrounding us in our current Western context. Then look at verse 3. The end of verse 3 describes this God, the Lord of hosts, as my king and my God. One of the rich blessings of studying scripture is the way in which the personal pronouns are, are used. 
I would encourage you at some point, we can't do this this morning, but I want you to walk your way through the book of Romans at some point and see how Paul describes the gospel. He describes it as the gospel of God, the gospel of the Son of God, but guess what else he calls it? He calls it my gospel. And part of what we're reckoning with this morning as the people of God is, do we recognize God as our God and as our King? Well, the goal this morning is uh, is this. I want us to reckon with the fact that God's pilgrims, that's you and I on this journey, God's pilgrims enjoy his provision as we walk through the desert unto glory. We enjoy the full bounty of the provision of God as we walk through the desert unto glory. We're going to break the psalm up into three parts. First, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. There is a glorious sense of joy that these pilgrims are expressing here in this psalm. Why is that? Well, let's go back to verse 1. Here, the opening line is, how lovely is your dwelling place? This is actually language of love poetry. This is language actually perhaps better translated is beloved rather than lovely. This is, there's, a, there's a sense of intimacy here of being in the presence of Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, the the God of Jacob, my King and my God. How glorious a privilege it is to be in the presence of the one who has said, you love because I have first loved you. And here we see in, in rich poetic language the splendor of God's dwelling place. What makes it splendorous? He makes it splendorous. It is dwelling in his presence. That is the longing of the pilgrim. In fact, in verse 2, we we see this language of longing and, and fainting for the courts of the Lord, to be in the presence of the beloved one. Here we see the psalmist describing the, this, this longing of the soul as we see, for example, in Psalm 42, the, the heart or deer panting for the water brooks. The hungering and thirsting to be in the presence of this almighty God. As the psalmist sees the people of God looking forward to that presence of, or being in the presence of this God who is their God, this personal and living God, there's a, there's a hungering and thirsting that is essential for the people of God. How is it that we lose that hungering and thirsting? It's when we fix our eyes on the things around us rather than on the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, of whom we read in Hebrews 12 this morning. But note also, But the reason why the courts of the Lord are a place of bounteous peace and provision is stated for us in verse 3. The sparrow, I'm sorry, finds a home, the swallow a nest for herself at your altars. Think about the altars for just a minute of the old covenant. What was the altar for? Why did the sacrificial system exist in the first place? 
because there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. The altar represents the place in which the sins of the people are covered. Sometimes I think we romanticize the the notion of old covenant priestly practice in which the priests, if you think about their work, what did they do? They killed animals and they sacrificed animals day in and day out. It was bloody, it was messy, and it was smelly work. But guess what? Their work was never finished, was it? It had to go on and on and on and on. This altar continued on until there was a final sacrifice. This is why we see the author of Hebrews marveling that after the work was done, what did the great priest of priests do? He sat down. No other priest before him was able to sit down. Why? Because the work was never done. But this altar is an altar that anticipates the coming Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this altar, why can the sparrow find resting place? Why can this insignificant bird find a place of security and a peace and a blessing? It is only because the access to the Holy One has been met for us by the Holy One himself. And this altar is a place of peace because it is a place of reconciliation. It is the place in which the sins of God's people are forgiven. It is no wonder then that my heart and my flesh sing for joy, as he says in verse 2. Because of the bounty of God's provision. And in verse 4, the same notion, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. The first principle that I want us to get to have our hearts recalibrated in the wilderness is that we can sing in our sorrowing. Indeed, we must sing in the desert. How was it that Paul and Silas were able in the prison to burst out in hymns of praise to their God? They were able to because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. They had no fear of what man might do to them because they found great joy in suffering because they knew that that suffering led unto glory. A glory secured for them by the Lord Jesus Christ. Please note that the singing of which the psalmist describes here the singing that that exploded forth from Paul and Silas was not a psychological technique to deal with the pain and suffering of their lives. It was a spontaneous explosion from their souls because they knew of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Singing is not a crutch It is the only appropriate response of God's people to his glorious provision right here and right now in the wilderness. We can sing in our sorrowing not by belittling the sorrow, but recognizing that it is God's way of preparing us to be in his presence. The deepest inclination of the soul is to cry out, It is to cry out, even as we faint, we can sing for joy 
to the living God. We sing as we sorrow. Next, verses 5 through 7. Not only do pilgrims enjoy the provision of God whereby we can sing as we sorrow, look in verses 5 through 7. We also here can rest in our wrestling. Blessed are those, verse 5, whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they, may, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. There is a blessed realism about this particular, these particular lines in this poem. There's a realism that it does not make light of the suffering. It does not pretend as though the suffering isn't real. This is not, again, some sort of psychological ploy to manipulate my world and to to, to make my thinking by the power of optimism somehow to overwhelm my circumstances. Quite the contrary. Where does the psalmist take us? Look at verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. There's a personal dimension to the pilgrim's progress, to a pilgrim's faith that is the intimate presence of the God who provides for his people in the wilderness. This psalm describes the pathway of the people of God as going through the valley of Baca, that is, the valley of tears, the valley of sadness, This is a, an honest look at the genuine, ongoing suffering of the people of God on this side of glory. One of the features of these verses is that it works quite contrarily to what many within the academic, indeed even in the popular culture, have sought to do with suffering. I'm certainly not going to exhaust those points here, but let me point out that this is not a philosophical construction by which we try to make sense of a world in which we are taught that God is good and yet there's there's evil. How do we make sense of that? The psalmist does not seek to reckon with that sort of philosophically abstract question. Instead, what he does is he he points us to, to a God who meets us right here in our suffering. He is the one who in, who, in who in whom we are to trust. He is the one that takes us from strength to strength. It is by virtue of his presence. Let me suggest to you that sur- surely there is a place for philosophy as an academic discipline. But philosophical answers to spiritual questions will always come up empty. We will only find the satisfying answers to our personal wilderness crises in the God who has said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I have met you in the wilderness through my son who is the great pioneer and perfecter of your faith of whom we read in Hebrews 12. 
to borrow the language of Star Trek, Jesus is the one who has gone where no man has gone before. He is the one who has made his way through the wilderness, and as Hebrews 4.14 puts it, having passed through the wilderness, he has now passed through the heavens. Hebrews 6, he has entered into the holy place as, guess what, our forerunner. He has gone there. What is a forerunner? It's the one who runs before you. He is the one that assures that he will take you where he has already gone. I played basketball in high school. I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you live in Raleigh, North Carolina, you play basketball. That's just the way that it is. My coach, Dread Ed, as we called him, had been the coach for Pete Maravich. Anybody who knows basketball knows that name. At all times, every player on the team was compared to Pete Maravich at every practice. In my case, it was always a contrast. <laughs> but one of the things our coach required of us is that we off-season ran track. I was a terrible runner. There's, by the way, there is absolutely no point in running if you don't have a ball. That's just my opinion. And so I had to, to, to run a particular distance in a particular time, and I could not do it. I, my best friend in, in high school, who became the best man in our wedding, was a great runner. You know what he did for me? Is after he had met the time required by our coach, he came back to me and, and ran with me and urged me along. He, he prodded me along. He is the one that took me across the finish line. He was my forerunner. Not in an abstract sense, hey, I've done that, I think you can do it too. He didn't sit on the sidelines and watch me run. He ran with me. And what we have pictured for us here in, he, in, in this, th these verses in, in, in Psalm 84 is, is the personal present provision of God for us in the wilderness. How do we go from strength to strength? How do we go from step to step? How do we make it through the end of today and wake up and do the same thing tomorrow? Not with some sort of abject conviction that I'm just going to dig my heels in, grip my teeth and make it there. No, we have the full, glorious provision of the risen Christ who has blasted through the heavens on our behalf. He has walked through the wilderness faithfully. And as these people of God in the old covenant looked to him, even as we look to him, they found the provisions of God in the wilderness taking them from strength to strength. In fact, it says that it is in the context of our suffering. It is there that God puts, infuses in our hearts the highways to Zion. The way in which we come to understand the glories of the future is in the context of the suffering of now. Many of you, if you had your own choice, you would come up with a different way to write the narrative of your life. Guess what? Your way is worse. In fact, your way is terrible. Only God knows what is best for you, including today's suffering. And it is in the context of meeting you here and now that he takes you from strength to strength. So, as we wander through the wilderness, we can not only sing as we sorrow, but we can rest confidently even as we wrestle 
in the wilderness. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, verse 6, they make it a place of springs. What a beautiful metaphor. The valley of Baca is a place of tears. Tears are not very satisfying to a parched tongue. But instead, here we see that the people of God are able to make the Valley of Baca, a place of springs. How is that so? Only because of this. It is because God meets us there. And by faith, his provision is right there for us in the wilderness. As the old covenant people of God made their way through the wilderness, they became thirsty, so God gave them water to drink. They became hungry, and God daily gave them manna. And was in that refinery of the wilderness whereby they came to enjoy the provisions. And what does Jesus do? He comes to us as the living water. He is the one who has made his way through the Baca himself. He has made his way to Zion, entered into his rest, securing for us our own. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength. Beautiful imagery to remind us that the Lord's strength is sufficient for today. This is moment by moment divine presence in the wilderness so that we can rest securely in our hearts no matter the chaos going around us, no matter the pressures that are weighing into our souls. We find that we can make it a spring's The early rain also covers it with pools, refreshing pools. I don't know if you've ever tried to drink Gatorade when it's 30 degrees below zero. It doesn't taste very good. It is only when you are hot, stinky, and sweaty that Gatorade is refreshing. In the same way, I would suggest to you that it is in the context of our suffering that the sweetness of the living water nourishes our souls as we fix our eyes on that destiny of being in the presence of God. It is there, as we fix our eyes there, that we discover he meets us here. We sing in our sorrow. We rest in our wrestling. God's pilgrims enjoy his provision as we walk through the desert unto glory. Thirdly and finally, pilgrims not only sing as we sorrow, pilgrims not only rest as we wrestle, but pilgrims also wait as we walk. Verses 8 through 12 again. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As you awakened this morning, 
and we're faced with the realities of your given pressures and sufferings, some of which I imagine are extraordinary not only in depth, but in their enduring, punishing effects upon your soul. Sometimes you may think the desert seems endless, that the desert seems pointless, the desert seems relentless. And guess what, my dear brother or sister, you know what you can do? You can do where the psalm, what the psalmist tells you to do. It is in the context of that weakness that you can cry, oh Lord, God of hosts, God of armies, hear my prayer. Hear me. We have a mistaken notion of the constant reiterated theme in scripture of waiting upon the Lord. Waiting is a, is a very important biblical theme. Some of us think waiting is kind of putting our feet up. Well, let me remind you the effects of going to a restaurant in Nashville where your waiter or waitress must have their feet up in a back room somewhere where you haven't seen him or her. That's not effective waiting, is it? That waiter or waitress doesn't get much of a tip. The kind of waiting that God has for us is a waiting that is engaged. It is a, it is a waiting as we walk. We, we move forward. We, we take one step of faith after another in which we, we serve. We, we seek to honor God in Christ following his word. And in our weariness, we, we, we wait and we pray. And we long for, as verse 10 says, the, the dwelling in the courts of the Lord. One of the features that is common to contemporary society as well is something I want to address briefly here. There's been a lot of talk in in recent years, recent Christian literature about the journey of faith. And very often, in fact, I have certain people in my orbit that when they sign their letters, they will put in the journey, comma, and their name, or with you in the journey. Well, on one hand, that's really, really good theology. But what I think you will find, if you pull the layers back to many people's ideas of the journey, sharing in the journey, what many people mean by that is that I'm sharing in the journey when I find somebody who has the same kind of suffering that I have. That somehow the, the, the connection of living by faith is met when I find somebody who gets me. And then what we end up doing as we come together is that we commiserate. So our idea of journey loses sight of the destination and our our notion of journey becomes a very self-absorbed psychological catharsis which seeks to actually erect some, some tool by which we can navigate this world. And it becomes a psychological defense mechanism as opposed to what we do as the people of God as we share one another's burdens is that the notion of being on the journey together is not commiseration, but it is delighting in the gospel provision for us in the context of our suffering. It is when we point one another to Christ Jesus that we enjoy the bounty of waiting upon the Lord as we walk. No, your 
Christian journey in the wilderness is not a journey alone. It's not just you and Jesus. It is in the context of the corporate work of God's people together that we walk the journey. But let's not reduce the journey to commiseration when the the essence of, of walking faithfully with the provision of God is a recognition that he calls us to fix our eyes on the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. If I could put it a little bit more bluntly, if in your co-misery with others you are not pointing them to Jesus, you are pointing them to some idolatrous notion that is foreign to the gospel. Let me urge you as we walk the walk of faith that we fix our eyes on the promises of God as well as the provisions of God for here and now. To put it a little bit differently, to take it back to verse 3. Walking faithfully in the wilderness calls us to long for Jesus as we rest in his work on the cross. It is resting in Jesus and being restless for him. Walking, waiting as we walk. Well, look at verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is what the Apostle Paul celebrates in Ephesians 1, that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in whom in Christ Jesus, the one who has walked the pathway of wilderness, been through the valley of Baca, cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then at his resurrection, he has declared the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by which he then becomes, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the life-giving Spirit who is poured out to his people. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Why? Because Jesus walked uprightly in our place. And what do we get in the gospel? We receive Jesus himself. No good thing does he withhold. What do we find with Jesus? We find one who has successfully walked in the wilderness. And what has happened by virtue of the union with Christ that we enjoy by his outpoured spirit is that we have in our hearts a new song. We have in our hearts the the highways to Zion. People of God, sing. People of God, rest in Jesus. People of God, wait. Because he's coming back. The highways to Zion that are in our hearts have been successfully traversed by the great pilgrim, by the chief pioneer who is leading many sons to glory. God's pilgrims enjoy his provision as we walk through the desert on our way to glory itself. As we see in the ironic blessing, people of God, be aware this morning as you find yourself in the wilderness, as you sing in your sorrow, as you rest in your wrestling, 
As you wait in your walking, let me remind you that the Lord blesses you. He, he is the one that keeps you. The Lord has made his face to shine upon you. The Lord has been gracious to you. The Lord has lifted up his countenance upon you and given you his peace. So walk together in it until the Lord Jesus comes back again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the provision of the Lord Jesus Christ for us in the wilderness. Thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. We even, as difficult as it is, we want to thank you for the wilderness because it's part of your good purpose for us. Give us the eyes of faith that we may trust you as the one who does all things well. And we would cry out together with one voice, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.